Hello, and welcome to Global. I'm Travis Green. On today's episode, we're going to be looking at an increasingly prominent theme within foreign policy, namely the way that China uses its influence around the world to achieve political and economic outcomes in its favor. Now, when we say China, we're not talking about the Chinese people at large. Instead, we are looking specifically at the decision makers within the Chinese Communist Party and their affiliates in state-owned enterprises. This is an important distinction to make because China is an authoritarian system. So the motivation and the actions taken by the government and private sector partners don't reflect the democratic will of the people. When people talk about Chinese influence around the world, it is often in the abstract. What we want to do in this conversation is to look at the specific tactics and impact that constitute these broader efforts. I spoke with IRI's senior advisor, David Shulman, the editor of the recent report titled Chinese Malign Influence and the Corrosion of Democracy. Dave, thanks for speaking with us today. So to get us started, let's set the stage. What are we talking about when we hear or when we say the words Chinese malign influence? So we like to break it down into a couple different areas. I'd say first, when we talk about malign influence, we're talking about what's happening in the economic domain, both in terms of illicit influence that occurs through you know the investment financing through China's massive Belt and Road initiative, this kind of global infrastructure and connectivity project that they've had going now for several years. And then also the illicit side of it is what happens behind closed doors in terms of corruption. So in the first, what you have really in terms of what's happening in the investment and financing is a lot of negative effects that come from the opacity that surrounds uh, the deals that China's concluding with a lot of these countries. The opacity here is not something that is a fluke or something that happens just um, by mistake. It's really intentional, I would say. Um, and it's not that you have you know, the Chinese leadership plotting how to take over the world through the Belt and Road Initiative and how to debt trap every country under the sun. But what you have is more kind of a process that's decentralized where you have Chinese policy banks setting up financing terms behind closed doors uh, with willing, you know, recipient governments, many of which have significant infrastructure financing gaps. So they actually do need this money. They do have, you know, development needs they need to fill. But you have these things happening behind closed doors. And then what happens is you also have the Chinese state-owned enterprise also kind of getting an advantage uh, through these, these opaque deals because the policy bank, as the terms are being set, it'll also be included that, well, um, how we determine who actually implements these projects, uh, it's not going to be an open tender bidding process, right? It's not going to be the kind of thing you see when you have Western donors going into countries or, or multilateral development banks. It's it's really designed to ensure that it gets the maximum advantage uh, for, for China, both in terms of the financing and the debt terms, but also in terms of the fact that, well, this state-owned enterprise is going to be the one that follows through. So this creates a situation where there's lots of opportunity for, number one, terms that are long-term very damaging for these countries' uh, economies, right? Because you have these terms that, that can create long-term debt burdens uh, and so forth. And then it's also really a, a situation and a, a context that's rife with corruption potential. So you have not only in terms of the individual deals, you know, officials' pockets being lined, uh, but you have the potential for more of a massive kind of grand corruption, which we term elite 
capture in a lot of these countries where the, the actual elites or the leaders of the countries become beholden to China in a way that, that is really detrimental um, to the country's sovereignty and makes them much less accountable to their own people. And then at the same time, you have what the, the National Endowment for Democracy has termed sharp power, right, which is the kind of manipulation of the information of the political environment uh, to advance China's goals in a way that undermines a country's democracy. Um, and putting these together is really where you get a very toxic effect on a democratic space because those actors in civil society or in the media or elsewhere who would in a healthy democracy otherwise be keeping their own officials honest, right, and would be a check on the kind of negative effects that might be coming from some of these Chinese investment deals, um, they're neutered. That creates a situation where there's no one watching. And so you, you really have the potential for free reign in a lot of these countries for China to do what it wants to do. In some countries... They don't even need to use this sharp power because you have a relationship with a liberal leadership in a fragile democracy. And so I mean, you have a country like Serbia, for instance, where there's a fair amount of control over the media space already by a China-friendly regime. So they're not going to allow coverage that's critical of China or Chinese investment. So China doesn't even really need to deploy that kind of sharp power. So that's a different kind of, you know, kind of pushing on an open door situation, as we've described it in the report, um, that's also obviously got significant damaging effects uh, on a democracy as well. You mentioned earlier that it's you know very opaque, but also very decentralized. I think a lot of our impression of how China operates is highly centralized, very top-down. Like, So how is this influence efforts that they're doing decentralized compared to the kind of centralization of political power? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and you know, it's it's funny because the, the assumption is, you know, it's the Chinese Communist Party. It's obviously a very top-down system, even internally. And in the propaganda space, the sharp power side that I discussed, that's actually where you do see a lot more of that centralized and that there is a propaganda department. There are, you know, these organs that are going out and being directed to use these tactics to shape, to some degree, the impression of China in the developing world. Um, And Xi Jinping gave a big speech in 2013 specifically about we need to up our propaganda efforts in the developing world specifically. So that side actually is more centralized than people realize. On the flip side, you know, in the Belt and Road, people think that it's, well, Xi Jinping says this, and then you have all the minions going out and just trying to debt trap and kind of create dependence all around the world. There are some countries where there's more of a strategic interest in making sure that there is a greater level of dependence on China. Generally, I would say that most countries, you don't have, you know, the Chinese center saying, okay, how do we go out and debt trap some landlocked country in in Africa or something? What you have more is a drive to achieve economic benefit in the developing world, right? All that's to say that there is some central direction, but it's not as centrally designed as many people might think there it's really being carried out by these individual yes state linked but individual companies and and banks and a lot of this is obviously reflected in the new report that you edited entitled Chinese malign influence and the corrosion of democracy and you refer to kind of a few different categories that you break out this kind of foreign influence campaigns or efforts why was it important to make some of those distinctions it was useful to break down the tactics it was useful to, to use a diverse set of Um, 12 different developing countries, and then also look at Australia to really identify how China's tactics look different depending on different, say, governance environments, depending on geography, depending on, as I mentioned, the level of strategic interest that China has in a country. Um, So all those things determine uh, how China exerts the influence and how it plays out in a country, and therefore how organizations can best address the problem. 
and you kind of started alluding a little bit to how this is kind of there's, it's on a spectrum, right? There's the you know, liberal elite capture side, there's the debt capture, and then there's you, know, you just referred to the beginnings of sharp power. Could you give a few examples of some places around the world that are on either end of those spectrums? Let's look at Sri Lanka, right, which is kind of the country that's the poster child for the debt trap because of what happened around the Hambantota port, um, which is a strategic port in Sri Lanka, um, where when Sri Lanka couldn't pay back its debts, China was able to get them to agree to a 99-year lease of this strategic port and 15,000 acres around it. So this is kind of the story that everyone looks to. I would argue, and there's evidence to this fact, that that's actually rather rare. We don't see a lot of instances uh, outside of the Sri Lanka example where um, China has been able to acquire a strategic asset like that, where there seems to be a real drive to use uh, the debt as a trap to achieve that goal. But that is what happened there, and that's been well documented. There are other aspects to that story. There was corruption uh, significantly involved, the fact that there was a change in power actually in Sri Lanka that occurred in 2015. But ultimately what happened in that case was a couple things. Number one, you had a situation where Sri Lanka was already so in debt to China, right, that they needed to continue to finance those debts. So even though new President Sarasena wanted, arguably, to kind of pull back, ultimately, they realized that they needed to go back to China to keep financing those loans. So they went back to China, I think, just last year for another $1 billion loan from China Development Bank. Um, so that's one aspect of this kind of cycle of dependence. The second part, and I don't want to get into this too deeply, but there are definitely indications that there was corruption not only of the former regime, the Rajapaksas, but also arguably of the new regime that came in, that China was able to cultivate officials in the new regime as well to, to get them to look more fondly uh, at some of these projects. And then there's the aspect of sharp power in Sri Lanka, where, you know, because Sri Lanka has become kind of the poster child for the debt trap, it's sullying the Belt and Road Initiative brand, basically, around the world, because everyone talks about this. And the Chinese leadership is trying to kind of undertake some rearguard action to protect that brand. They realize they need to to address that problem. And so what we see in Sri Lanka is a lot of money going into research organizations, think tanks, um, and others to truly try to shape the way in which internally in Sri Lanka, they're talking about the Belt and Road Initiative. You know, there are other countries where it's it's very much at the beginning. This isn't surprising that it's going to be outside of Asia where you find less influence or influence is just starting up. And there's also, at the same time, less of a an understanding of the way in which the Chinese Communist Party operates. So we've done some work in, in Serbia, in Belgrade, where, for obvious reasons, the Serbians just are not focused on, on China traditionally, right? I mean, it's far away. If they're thinking about foreign influence, they're thinking about Russia. That's starting to change. But it's it's somewhat in its infancy. And so when we had a workshop in the spring there, I think it was a really useful session where we talked about not just we had done, you know, the research that's in the report on Serbia, which our excellent Serbian researcher Vuk Vuksanovic led. So we talked about some of those findings, but then we also talked about the broader findings of what's happening globally in terms of China's influence tactics, right? And so shedding some light on, okay, this may or may not be happening here already. But this is what's happened elsewhere. And this is what people who are concerned about, you know, Serbia's long-term economic prosperity, its democratic institutions can watch out for and look for, right? And this is how the Chinese Communist Party operates. And this is what sharp power looks like. This is how some of these institutions that look like just a friendly China association, right? Maybe a cultural organization or an organization that 
um, is dedicated to eventual reunification of China and Taiwan, things like that, the China Student Association, that they have party backing, right? And so they may look like soft power organizations, but actually what they are is really a, a mouthpiece of the Chinese party state. Um, and so that explaining, discussing how that's different from your typical soft power institution. So what China's doing in different places is quite different because of just geography, because of its interests, and because of the type of landscape that it's engaging in. And that's another point. We can get onto this more a little bit later in terms of resilience. But I mean, China operates very differently depending on the regulatory environment, how transparent the state is, the level of uh, you know investigative journalism and media coverage of some of these issues. Why is it so important to raise that awareness at that that higher level of policymakers and stakeholders within government? Like, wh- why is that such a necessary thing to to really drive home? It's important because the message that the U.S. government generally ought to be offering is not stop dealing with China full stop. You know, don't take Chinese money. the The message should be. Here's how China operates. Here are China's influence tactics. Here's what has happened in other countries. So you are aware of what's happening globally. And then here's what's happening in your country, if you're not aware already. Some of them may be aware. So that you're kind of exposing, you're putting some sunlight on what's already happening for those who actually care. And in some cases, you'll have government officials care. Uh, in some cases, a lot of those government officials are benefiting uh, from the the opacity in these in these deals. So again, that comes down to the particular context in a particular country. But you're always going to obviously be able to find people in, in the media space, the civil society space, people who want to, to you know, protect their own house and want to make sure that their institutions are safe. So having that initial understanding of the way the party rolls, the way it exerts influence, and the effect that it can have on democracies, and also showing, you know, examples um, of positive pushback that have happened in other countries. We could say, you know, in Malaysia, in Burma, in the Maldives, in a bunch of other countries, there have been, you know, stories of real resilience. This is how that's happened. These countries are continuing to engage on some level with China, but they're doing it in a way that's that's responsible and protective of, the, of their sovereignty and their financial independence long term. Um, so when you put, put that knowledge and that information out there, you will, by, you know, just by nature, have people who, of course, are, you know, patriots for their own country and want to defend um, defend their institutions. And then the second step is supporting investigative journalism, supporting civil society, supporting transparency, um, helping also uh, around negotiations, arguably, around some of these infrastructure financing deals. Uh, that's another big step uh, that, that can be taken. So let's look a little bit to how some of these countries have reacted to China's activities. What's an example of a democracy that has successfully mitigated the threat that China poses to its institutions. So I mentioned Malaysia, which is an important one where there was a significant level of corruption and inflation of costs around Belt and Road projects under the former Prime Minister Najib Razak. Uh, when you had new Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamed come in, he said he was going to you know, look into all of these projects and see whether they were beneficial for Malaysia long term and ultimately decided to renegotiate and was able to renegotiate them, especially the East Coast Rail Link, which is a big project in Malaysia, and actually able to cost cut the cost by a third, uh, which indicates in and of itself how inflated the cost was to begin with. Um, so the fact that they were able to do that, uh, that was really positive. And in, in some of the workshops that we've had, we've brought in people to talk about, say, Malaysia's experience and talk about how, you know, this can be done um, if, if there's enough headwinds behind it, right? And if there's enough uh, democratic change, which was re- what ultimately caused that that pushback. In Burma, you know, there's been reduction in the 
massive project that China was planning with Burma. It's gone from a seven billion something dollar project down to one billion something, um, which is a massive change. The government had recognized that they just could not take on the amount of debt that would come uh, from from the project as it was initially conceived. Uh, there's also been some talk of going forward the projects undertaken under the China-Myanmar Economic Corridor, which is a part of BRI, um, being uh, being much more transparent, have much more open bidding process, uh, that sort of thing. So that's a positive change. There, for, fortunately, are several examples of real you know, positive resilience. And then the most famous one, um, I would say, and the reason we include it in the report, even though it's a developed democracy, obviously, is Australia, where there was significant Chinese influence and interference, not just in the information space, but also in the political space. What happened there was, you know, you had a real investment in investigative journalism um, that exposed what was happening, um, that made a huge difference, that raised the profile of the issue and made it something that was viewed as a real problem across the board in the um, Australian political space. And then they did something about it in terms of passing laws, restricting um, foreign political money uh, into campaigns, restricting the ability of those who are advocating for foreign entities, uh, making sure that they have to be a lot more transparent about what they do. Is there a distinguishing factor, in your opinion, to why those countries that you just mentioned were able to succeed, whereas others have not? Like a couple of them you clearly referenced, you know, changes in leadership that kind of prompted some of those revisions. Like, is, is there something distinguishable that can be replicated. What we underline in the report is that transparency has been critical to all of these positive cases. And so in instances where you have a real growing groundswell um, of attention to the issue, and then eventually a political change, like as happened in the Maldives, as happened in Malaysia, you know, it's been because there's a, a broader public understanding and awareness of the fact that these countries' long-term prosperity is being robbed. This is the people's democracy, and it's being taken from them, and that their leaders are increasingly not accountable. In most cases, it's not exclusively about China. So in the Maldives, you had just a, and, and in Malaysia as well, you had a very corrupt, very corrupt regimes that were um, doing all kinds of things, not just with China, right? And so that became exposed, and China was a part of that. So, you know, usually it is going to be something that involves a lot of transparency and attention to the issue. Referring back to something you mentioned earlier, you talked about how in Serbia, at the very least, um, when people think about foreign influence, it's in reference to Russia. How is what China doing different than the way that Russia operates as far as foreign influence campaigns? Yeah, this is a very important question. There's the inclination, obviously, to kind of throw China and Russia into the same bucket when we talk about foreign influence and interference. In some ways, it makes sense because the effect that they're having together uh, in many of these countries build upon each other. In most ways, what what they do is very different, right? So when we talk about what Russia is doing in the disinformation space and in the like deliberately trying to undermine a lot of democratic processes, um, that's not something that you can really identify China doing in most countries around the world. Taiwan is a separate separate situation. And Taiwan's important to watch for what could happen. It's kind of the canary in the coal mine for if China did want to undertake some of these efforts, what it could do. But leaving that aside, um, in most developing countries, you don't see China trying to, you know, principally aim at uh, undermining a a democracy or kind of setting factions against each other. What they try to do, as we lay out in the report, is really try to defend China's interests in each country. And so what that often means is shaping the information space and arguably benefiting political actors who are going to take a more friendly approach to China and are going to defend uh, China's interests or not going to um, criticize Chinese investments. So while you do have 
evidence of China um, arguably trying to time uh, investments to bolster certain candidates right ahead of elections, while you do have China geographically seemingly target uh, investments in certain places uh, towards more politically powerful or important areas. And while you do have certainly China contributing to political campaigns, but it's not the same thing as what as what Russia's doing. Um, that said, there's really a synergy between what China's doing in terms of influence and what Russia's doing and the effect that it's having on democracies, and especially in Eastern Europe, where obviously Russia uh, has been very um, involved. So what you could have is a situation where Russia is undermining democracy uh, in a country um, and really laying questions uh, really in the in the benefits of a democracy for a country, perhaps getting in, interfering in the actual electoral process, while at the same time you have China as this country that's offering investment that's untied to democracy and government's goals. So the countries that would have otherwise had to say the right things at least about democracy and governance to their Western donors or to the Western or to the multilateral development bank, uh, they don't have to do that anymore because they're getting this untied untied money. You have those two things going on at the same time, and those those kind of help to pull uh, these countries away from the, I'd say, the kind of democratic West and into um, the, the authoritarian orbit. In addition, this is because you have this China model that, you know, China is now the second biggest economy in the world, right? And they've done it in a, they've developed not in the democratic way in which we and and most of the uh, democratic world say you're supposed to supposed to do things right and so that model is very attractive to a lot of countries and china is now just in the last couple of years more vocally coming out and saying well you know there's this alternative uh, you can choose to take our path you can choose to take the authoritarian development path this combination of of that that model there, and the fact that China is pouring this money and it's untied to governance reforms, and you have at the same time uh, Russia kind of you know messing around in a country's democracy and sowing doubts about it. This is kind of a toxic mix in terms of um, you know pushing countries that might already be trending in an authoritarian direction away from democracy. Start kind of wrapping it up a little bit. You referenced earlier how many countries around the world do need this investment. We talked about just a second ago with like that model is very appealing. What message would you want to communicate to countries that are considering taking on Chinese investment, why they should reconsider and hold off on that? The ultimate effect of China's influence and its investments in a lot of these countries is a corrosion of their democracy, right? A corrosion of leaders' accountability to their own people, um, and ultimately, in many countries, a diminution of their actual independence or, or even arguably their sovereignty. It's very attractive to you know, take some of this this investment for projects that, that are needed. You know, yes, there are examples of Chinese white elephant projects. There are examples of projects and infrastructure that are falling apart. There are also examples of, you know, roads and bridges and, and so forth that are very useful for a country that come out of some of this investment. But the question is at what cost, right? And so that's why, you know, as I said at the outset, the, the goal is not to say full stop, no more engagement with China. It's how can you do so in a way that's, you know, that achieves the greatest uh, benefits for the country in a way um, that protects its independence and protects its economy going forward. And as I said, there are examples where countries have been able to push back um, and been able to go into these negotiations and demand better terms, right? Part of that, it's going to come from 
the governments coming together and offering alternatives to Chinese financing and investments so that these countries aren't just beholden um, to, you know, saying, well, we need to develop, we have one alternative, and it may not be a good one, but we have to go with it. Uh, that's not a good position for negotiating leverage. There's hopefully going to be an increasing level, and we already seen signs of this, an increasing level of collaboration between development finance corporations and multilateral development banks. Um, it looks at this point like a drop in the bucket compared to the numbers that the Belt and Road uh, puts forward, but it is a start in terms of ensuring that these countries, when they look at, okay, how are we going to develop our country, they don't just have to only go to China. They have other alternatives, even if it's, you know, at a smaller scale and it's more support for private investment as opposed to the kind of subsidized um, work that Chinese state-owned enterprises are doing in countries. Um, and then I would say, in addition to that, there needs to really be a an effort um, in the information space um, for uh, civil society, for media, for the academic uh, domain, all the kind of thought leadership space for people to make an effort to understand dealing with China is not like dealing with from democracies um, and from multilateral development banks, that there are riders, that there are risks involved that they need to be aware of and that can be mitigated if they take uh, an approach that comes from a real knowledge of, of what has happened in other places. Great. Well, Dave, this has been a truly enlightening conversation. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. It's been great. To wrap all this up, we want to leave you with a few takeaways. First, the distinction that we made at the beginning between the Chinese people and the decision makers that are carrying out this global effort is really important to keep in mind. This is a decentralized effort led by the Chinese Communist Party and its affiliates within the state-owned enterprises and does not reflect the will of the people. Second, in addition to corruption and weak institutions, a key enabling condition for China to exert its influence is a real need in these countries for investment that China is able to fill. And finally, making countries resilient to these efforts has several different elements, one of which is raising awareness about the true cost of doing business with China and about the corrosive effects of its sharp power. If you liked today's conversation, please be sure to rate us and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, and it really helps to get the word out. Until next time, I'm Travis Green, and thanks for listening to Global.